But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, how is it you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. Let's pray for our sermon together today. Almighty Father, I ask humbly for your spirit to guide and lead me to give us words that are of you. And we humbly ask that you would fill us with your spirit to have ears to hear and hearts to receive your words and be changed by them. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as best we can tell, here's probably what's happened in this difficult, difficult story. Uh, there's this couple... Ananias and Sapphira, they're part of this young church. Remember we talked last week about what has been called the community of goods. And there's this radical generosity going on. And people in the church, when they see those that are needy, among them, they will come forward and they will sell things like fields, houses. And that money is used so that there's no needy persons among them. And we said, this is radical generosity. And this couple, they come forward. We don't really know exactly when, how, but we can sort of piece together that what happened is they sold their property and they presented that in this act of radical generosity to the community, but what happened was they lied. They basically said, yeah, here's the $500,000 I don't know what that is in denarii or talents, sorry. Here's the $500,000 that we got from selling our property. It's at your disposal, apostles. And it turns out they sold it for 700,000, 800,000, a million. We don't know, we don't know. But they lied about how much they got. And they die. It seems as a result of that lie, as a result of God's judgment, that's what the story seems to be saying. So let's start here. What exactly did they do wrong? What was their sin that warranted this punishment? Well, it's probably a few different things. If you read through the way people have tried to understand this, I mean, it might be lying, fraud. You could think of it as embezzlement almost or stealing. There are people that have thought of it that way. Why? Because as soon as they sold that money in the system they had and the way that this was operating, all the money became the churches and they held back. They certainly took from the offering plate. 
Another way people have thought of this is their sin was, was also ambition and jealousy and fame. In chapter four, we learned about Barnabas and he sold his field and right on the heels of that, they come forward and they're like, we're doing the same thing. So lying, stealing, ambition. Why does God strike them dead though for those things? Well, some have said, look, God didn't want that corruption to spread. What was at stake was the character of the church. God couldn't let that slide for the sake of the community. In a similar way, some have said, look, okay, what we, what we see here is an example. God was communicating something by way of this example for the rest of us. And I have to say, there has to be something to that. Because if you think about it, what we see here is atypical, not typical. It's extraordinary, it's not ordinary. Why do I say that? Because this doesn't happen, as far as I can tell, every time someone does something like stealing from church, lying in church. I'm guessing if this happened every time, if this was typical, we'd see a lot more deaths occurring in church. So the fact that it's atypical Suggests probably, yeah. I mean, God needed to communicate something to us in this example. Here's one. God struck them dead in this way because of the severity of their sin. Something like an affront against God's holiness. We're going to talk about this today. This is hard. This is really hard. Think back. Reminds me of that story in 2 Samuel 6. You remember this one. His name is Uzzah. We always forget his name. Uzzah. And he had a brother named Ohio. Not Ohio, Ohio, as far as I can tell. Sons of Abinadab. And they were the guys, if you remember this, David and the Israelites were transporting the ark. You remember this story? And they got a new cart. And the ark was on the cart and it was going from town to town. And Uzzah and Ahio were the guys that were in charge of overseeing that cart in the ark. And the oxen move in a certain way and the cart totters. And Uzzah reaches out his hand to study the ark. And he touches it. And God strikes him dead. And David is angry and David is scared. And David won't even go near the ark for three months. It's a hard story. And then there's the story in Exodus 19. God is consecrating the people at the foot of Mount Sinai. And he says, look, be careful. Anyone that touches the mountain, you're going to need to be killed. So there are these examples that are hard for us of what? God's holiness somehow being at stake sometimes in ways that warrant severe punishment, as far as we can tell, man, it might be something like this too. You know, Matthew 12, 31, 32, hard verses. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Everything else will. Hebrews chapter six, Hebrews chapter 10, says things like, if you've tasted the Holy Spirit, 
And then you sin, you can't be restored to repentance. There are serious sins in the Bible with drastic, drastic results. And what we may see here with Ananias and Sapphira is one such sin. I mean, it seems like that. So I think, <laughs> as we're trying to reckon with this, the best I can do is let's start here. Let's name what's so hard about this. Let's name what's so disturbing about this for us. And I think it's two things, and they're related. I think the two things that are hard is it seems like the punishment is disproportionately excessive. It seems like that is too harsh a punishment for what they did. That's one thing that we probably feel at some level. And the other thing is, and this is related, it just seems like what happens to the United States of Fire being struck dead doesn't fit well with the God that we love and know and worship as relentlessly pursuing sinners and forgiving sins and praying from the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. I think this is why we're disturbed. Here's my best attempt to reckon with that disturbance. I'm gonna say two things. I don't know if these are satisfying or not, but this is my best attempt. First, I think we have to acknowledge that we don't really know how to reconcile judgment and mercy. We don't really know how to reconcile justice with love. I mean, we think we do. We know that they should be reconciled, but we have a hard time doing it. We have a hard time understanding how that works. And going a bit further, let's just kind of as best we can acknowledge one of our cultural blind spots. A friend of mine put it this way. In our Christian culture today, in our churches, in our day and age, we are probably biased towards mercy. Now, I want to nuance that a bit. I think as Christians, we should always be biased towards mercy. But I think what he meant is, is, is dead on, and I wrestle with this. I think what he meant is something like, we are biased towards toleration at all costs, welcoming at all costs, saying yes pretty much all the time. We are biased against costly judgment difficult conversations, having to say no in ways that hurt, having to fight for the truth in ways that offend and cause people to leave. We are biased against that compared to other cultures and other moments. I mean, Paul would write things like, I wish those who unsettle you would castrate themselves. That's a different mode of fighting for truth. If I said that from the pulpit, you would probably be really worried about me. But Paul said that. We live in a different cultural moment. I mean, we live in a different cultural moment. And that's good in some ways, maybe, but it also means we really have a hard time dealing and reckoning with judgment. We should name that. It's hard for us to understand. We want justice without cost. We want maturity without discipleship. We want salvation without the cross. We gotta acknowledge this. Here's something else we struggle with, I think. 
We don't really understand the sacred. We just don't. Compared to other cultures, other times and places, we have a hard time with the sacred. I've mentioned this book before that I love. This psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. It's called The Righteous Mind. I used it in a different context. We'll talk about it again later today. But one thing, one point he makes that I didn't mention before, this convicts me. He, like an anthropologist, looked at, with others, studying morality across cultures, across peoples, across time. And he identified what he said are six moral foundations, principles of morality that kind of sum up to the whole of morality for humans. Here are the six principles. Care, fairness, loyalty, authority, sanctity, and liberty. Those are the six. By the way, he makes an utterly, utterly fascinating point. I should not mention this, but I'm going to. He says, one way to understand the intense divide politically between liberals and conservatives in our country is that liberals care about three of those things and conservatives care about six. Liberals care about care, fairness, and liberty. Conservatives also care about loyalty, authority, and sanctity. He makes a very convincing case. But here's, here's my point today. Even conservatives who care a lot about sanctity don't care about it or understand it nearly as much as other people groups in other times and places. Height says something, he says, our society is weird. And he uses that in all caps as an acronym. He says, weird means we're Western, educated, industrialized, democratic, and rich compared to other cultures across the whole of time, and that makes us weird. We don't get the sacred. You don't believe me? Let me give you some examples. We don't get the sacred. I will confess to you there have been times I've been in the sanctuary by myself doing something with music equipment or whatnot, stubbed my toe or I don't know, and I cursed. And it just felt so bad and wrong to curse here versus on the street. And I can't quite articulate why. And the sad thing is, that's kind of sort of as close as I can get to giving you an example of, of the sacred, right? There's other examples. When I was growing up, I, I've lost this. This breaks my heart. I think I used to understand the sacred better. I used to have this practice. No one taught it to me. But I would never set anything on top of a Bible. Just felt wrong. No one put anything on it. It had to be on top. If it was on a stack of books, it was the topmost book. I think that had something to do with my impulse towards the sacred, maybe. Here's a better example. You guys may remember this. I remember news coverage of this story. It was 1987. There was a piece of artwork. The name of it was Piss Christ. Do you remember this? And the artist had gotten a plastic crucifix and put it in a glass tank filled with urine, and that was artwork. And I remember seeing that, hearing about that, and I was like, oh, that is awful. That is awful. That is awful. But I... I racked my brain this week trying to come up 
with examples of my engagement with, my emotions towards, my experience of the sacred. And it's hard, especially compared to other cultures. So when we deal with something like lying to God, we get it at an intellectual level, sort of, kind of, but we struggle with it because we don't really get the sacred. I love the language that some people use about God being untamable, uncontrollable, even dangerous. But I don't really know why I like that, and it also threatens me. We have a hard time with the sacred. So what do we do? If we have these cultural blinders and we have a hard time with judgment, we have a hard time with punishment, we have a hard time with the sacred, we love to talk about love, we want to be nice, we want to be tolerant, and we have a hard time culturally with these other aspects of the Bible. What do we do if we're still disturbed that God struck them dead? Because I'm still disturbed. Well, I think the answer is we taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, I chose those words carefully. I'm not going to tell you in an intellectual way the Lord is good. I'm not going to try to justify that, and I don't want you to justify it. You taste and see that the Lord is good. There's this book that I love called Cross Vision, and it's trying to wrestle with the violence in the Old Testament gives this metaphor at the start, which has stuck with me, kind of haunts me. I kind of love it. This author, his name is Greg Boyd. He's a pastor in Minnesota. He says, look, if I were walking down the street and I saw my wife across the street and I yelled at her and she couldn't hear me over the cars, and I was going to go down and cross the street to meet her, and as I looked over and I saw her, I saw her approach this man sitting in a wheelchair asking for change with a sign that he needed change and um, she approached him, and I know my wife, and my wife is an amazing, compassionate woman, and I expected her, knowing her, to maybe give a dollar or five dollars or something into his jar. And instead, she screamed at the top of her lungs, knocked the jar out of his hand, kicked over his wheelchair, and started running. He said, I would have to come up with an explanation for what happened. He said, what she appeared to do, I know because I know her, cannot be true. It cannot be the case that she was as cruel as appeared. So what I would do in that case, because I know my wife, is I would think things like this. Maybe she'd been part of a sociological experiment and the man in the wheelchair was in on it and they wanted to test what people on the street, how they would react if someone did that. Maybe that's what was going on. Or maybe it was like a television show, like pranked. And again, the man in the wheelchair was in on it and they were kind of doing this reality TV show and he spins his wheels and he comes up with different explanations, but he says, what's primary as I try to reckon with those actions, is the fact that I know my wife to be good. That's what governs how I have to wrestle with that. What we need to do if we're disturbed by this story is claim that God is good. And let me go back and say, it's not just claiming it, we have to taste and see. 
I say this all the time, we are not purely intellectual creatures. And I mentioned that book, The Righteous Mind, the reason I'd mentioned it in a prior sermon, I love it, is he debunks this illusion that we're fundamentally people of the mind, that we believe what we believe because we think through arguments. It doesn't work that way. If you want to not be disturbed by this story, yeah, sure, wrestle with it. Read books. You know I do. Great. But more than that, taste and see that the Lord is good. That is the antidote if you're disturbed. So come to the Wednesday prayer we've been having. I will tell you, last couple of weeks, afterwards, I was just talking with some of the folks that was there. I was like, you know, I felt like I really, really entered into the heart of God today. I prayed in ways that didn't seem like they were quite me. They were from somewhere beyond me, but they were also totally me. It's an experience of encountering the Spirit of God. Things come out of your mouth that surprise you, but they seem totally who you were meant to be. Taste and see the Lord is good. After I preached that sermon on Acts 3 and disabilities. I had some good conversations with some of you. And Joanna shared this film with me, this short film. We should find a way to watch this. I think it's on YouTube. It's called The Butterfly Circus. It's like a 23-minute film. And it was so beautiful. And I had just been reading and learning like we were praying today about the welcome, the embrace that people with disabilities don't have and that they lack and that they yearn for. And then I watched this film and I just felt my heart moved and stirred. And I felt like I caught the slightest glimpse of looking through Jesus's eyes and not my own eyes. If you're disturbed by this story, Taste and see that God is good. Throw yourself into something. Prayer, worship, reading, conversation. Don't make it purely intellectual. Taste and see that God is good. Okay, so that's me wrestling with the disturbing part. Here's what I want to say in conclusion. I want to make a few points about what I do think this story says for us. If it's an example, I said it's got to be an example. It's atypical. It's not typical. God wants us to hear something. God wants to teach us something. What is that something? Here's a few thoughts. First, and I don't quite know what to do with this, but I'm going to put it out there. Only a spirit of fear is bad. Fear is not. Fear of the Lord's a good thing. Only a spirit of fear is bad. I met a young man and I went to lunch with him and he poured out his heart to me that he thought he had committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He'd been a Christian and then he found himself falling into some new age circles and practices and things that he did. And he felt at some point down that process, the spiritual weight of what he was doing and they were forces that were not of God. And he said, I think 
I think I might have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And what I said to him, which I think is right, I didn't say don't worry about it. I didn't say don't worry about it. Because I think his fear was good. I said, here's the thing. You may not have, I don't know. But regardless, what you have to do is throw yourself at the feet of God and ask for mercy. I said, sometimes, sometimes in scripture, God issues an irrevocable word of judgment. It's done. And then someone comes along, someone with deep faith and humility, and says, God, please change your mind. Whether it's Abraham with Sodom and Gomorrah, whether it's Hezekiah in Isaiah 38, I said, the best thing I know is that your fear is right because you understand that God is not to be trifled with. God is not your vending machine. God is not someone that you can just sort of presume upon his mercy indefinitely and forever and minimize your sin, but throw yourself upon his mercy. We're supposed to fear the Lord because he's God. Second point, Ananias and Sapphira teach me that violence is in the hand of the Lord. This story is reminiscent of another one in the Bible. From, there's the story in Joshua 7 after Israel defeats Jericho. You know that one, the walls come tumbling down. You may have forgotten the second part of the story. The second part of the story is when the walls come tumbling down, they're supposed to take everything and either destroy it or save certain sacred things. It calls them devoted things for the treasury of the Lord. Things like gold and silver, these are devoted to God. These are sacred devoted things. God says, do not keep any of those things. Of course, someone does. His name is Achan. And Israel starts to lose in battle terribly and Joshua has to suss out and work with the Lord to discern, okay, someone sinned. So they go and they find out it's Achan. Following the Lord's command, the people stone him to death and his family and burn them. Now, that's hard. I don't want to talk about that too much today. We'd have to wrestle with that on its own terms. But I want to say this, the same verb, and it's a pretty rare verb, is used in Greek for what Akan did and for what Ananias and Sapphira did. They held back. They withheld. They kept hold of what was God's. And people said, look, this story may well have been in the background when Luke is telling a story of Ananias and Sapphira. And the contrast is critical. In the story of Akan, the people are commanded to stone Akan, not Ananias and Sapphira. Vengeance is the Lord's. Violence is in God's hands, not ours. There is no more stoning. There is no more violence that is our province. That is God's onus to defend his own honor. Last point. Most important point, I think. Here, if you hear nothing else today, hear this point. Here's what Ananias and Sapphira teaches me. I hope it teaches us. 
Peter says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God. What that teaches us is that what we're doing here right now, even right now, even in these words, even in this listening, what we are doing here is dealing with God. That's why we come here. That's what we have to remember when our attention fades and we start thinking about lunch. We get distracted and we don't want to engage in the hard conversation and forgive someone because it's hard and we want to just come to the table and not think about that. And we don't, we are dealing right here, right now with each other in flesh and blood with the things of God. God is here in our midst and that's why we're gathered. When Ananias and Sapphira lie to people in the church about the money and matters of the church, Peter says you were lying to God because God is here in our midst. You know, I've told you many times, I left my law firm after 10 months. Big law is what they call it colloquially, you know, the crazy hours, the crazy prey, the crazy pressure, the crazy status. I left it for a lot of reasons. The hours, the stress, the environment, But you know what I realized after was probably the main reason that I left being a lawyer? The main reason I left big law was the disjunct between the culture and the atmosphere of life and death, high pressure stakes, be available at all times. You're like a surgeon saving lives and what we were actually doing. I bore the stress of a surgeon in order to make some billionaire another eight basis points on a derivative of a derivative of a derivative. If you don't know what that means, good. That gap between the pressure and the stress and the environment and the atmosphere and what I was doing it for, I just couldn't live with. Do you know what? This small, clunky, heat not always working, not glamorous, not mega church, I've never felt that way. Even as Quincy can attest when I stay awake all night stressing out, even when I get discouraged, deeply discouraged, even when I put in long, 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 long hours, what I know in my gut is that I am doing life and death work now. I am doing life and death work now. We're gonna come to the table and we are not eating mere bread or drinking mere fruit of the vine. We are saying yes to God's own invitation to be a part of his people, to be a part of his kingdom, to be involved with him, to be changed by him, to surrender to him. There's nothing merely human about anything we are doing together today. Amen.